We're talking about death, and it is an encouraging subject because it's coming for all of us, and it is part of the plan of God for our life. But when we talk about death, as we covered last week, there's a spiritual death, and then there's a natural death. If you're here this morning, I know you have been born again. You have passed from death into life. That took place in your spirit, man. Now the only thing that awaits you is a physical death. And there's a lot to be said that could be dated, uh, debated about whether the rapture is death. And I, I would argue that rapture is death for your physical body. Because what is death but the cessation of life in your biology? And what we're talking about this morning is natural death. So even the rapture is death for your natural body. It's transformed. It ceases to exist. Think about a soldier who lands on an IED and is instantly obliterated. They're instantly transformed. That, not that the rapture is stepping on an IED, but when your body is instantly transformed, obliterated, and is no more, that's death. Even Elijah, who was caught up in a whirlwind, his body didn't go to heaven. Actually, he didn't go to heaven. He went to hell. The grave, which we'll cover in the next lesson. Don't let that freak you out. Sheol is the place of the departed, translated hell. Even Elijah, caught up in a whirlwind, he would have gone to Abraham's bosom, but his body would have ceased to exist. So he technically died in the natural body. Same with Enoch. God took him. Did God take his body to Abraham's bosom? No. He took him. The body was no more, and his spirit man was in Abraham's bosom, awaiting the resurrection of Christ. So we're not to fear the death or the cessation of life in our biology. This body is on loan from God. It's his. He purchased it. It's a biological miracle and creation. And we're not to fear the passing of it because that's just a transition for our being. So I want us to be encouraged. In a sense, death is coming for all of us. But you've passed from death into life. Even as Corinthians 15 says, quoting the Old Testament, O death, where is your sting? God has conquered all of that and given us eternal life. And once this body passes, he will give us a new body in the future. All right, as covered in lesson one, death requires a two-step process. First, spiritual death, and then a natural death. Theologically speaking, it's all theoretical because we cannot prove it. It did not happen. But had Adam and Eve never partaken of the fruit and sinned, it is very much argued, and I agree, that they were, their bodies would have lived forever because there was no sin bringing death. They would have lived forever, which the conjecture goes, and I agree with it, that the reason God had to put them out of the garden was so that in their fallen state, they wouldn't eat of the tree of life and live forever dead. Go, go figure that out doctrinally. Spiritual death takes place, then natural death. Natural death or the death of the biological body can be caused by any number of things, and we understand this, cancer, traumatic injuries from accidents, murder, or simply falling asleep in the Lord. The death of the bi biological body releases the spirit of man into eternity, whether it be heaven or hell, and the body cannot live without the spirit man. And we know that James 2.26 says, For as the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without works is dead also. I was recently listening to a, an old Dr. Summerall recording, probably from the late 80s. He passed away in 96. And he was talking about when his airplane crashed. Dr. Barclay had an airplane. He had several ministry aircraft. And his airplane was coming into Indiana. It crashed with five of his men on board, killed all of them. Tragic, horrific event. And when it happened, Brother Summerall had a vision. And I've never heard Brother Summerall in all the years I've listened to him, 20 plus years of all of his old recordings, 
Never ever heard him talk about any dreams, any visions he ever had from God. But he said he had a vision and he saw the wreckage of the airplane and he saw his five men disembodied, as in their spirit men, floating above the aircraft. And he said he could see them transitioning into heaven, but he said one of his engineers was sitting there and again hovering above the aircraft. And his engineer said, boy, look at that. Isn't that just a mess? And he said, that's exactly how he talked. That's exactly how he thought about things. Isn't that just a mess? And the Lord spoke to him and said, don't worry, these men felt nothing. They suffered nothing, but they're with me now. Their bodies were obliterated in a car accident and their spirit men were instantly released and yet they hung around for a moment to see what had happened and they said, well, look at that. Isn't that just a mess? Airplane wreckage all over this cornfield for a great distance. The body without the spirit is dead. This is the ideal way to die. And we will probably cover that more in these future lessons. I'm still working on these as we teach them because there's so much here we've never been taught. It's been studied. It's been established, but we've just never taught it. The ideal way to die is not cancer. It's not a car accident. It's not murder. It's not being in the wrong place at the wrong time. The ideal biblical way to die is to fall asleep or just give up the ghost. Release your spirit. That's, that's the ideal way. Now, there are those that are martyred. That might be runner-up. I'm not really interested in being martyred, but we have plenty of testimonies from especially the Spanish Inquisition, especially during the Catholic times when they were martyring and burning at the stake. Protestants who were protesting against the Catholic, they discovered there was a martyr's grace, and they felt nothing when they were martyred, when they were burned at the stake. And so I believe that as well, that should you have to be martyred, you'd feel nothing because the Lord Jesus would have that martyr's grace upon you. But we're not anticipating that. <laughs> Dissolve tabernacles. Let's see what the New Testament says about our bodies. And let me, let me add this. In teaching on this, I want you to aim that the spirit realm is more real to you than your own flesh and blood. I want you to aim as a church and as members of the body of Christ that the things of eternity are more real to you than your own body. Now, that's hard to say when you're in pain or you got the sniffles. Uh, but even in pain or sniffles or fighting sickness or a long day on the job and your feet ache, the things of God can be more real to you. Brother Hagin used to say that when he would teach years ago, that, that the Spirit of God is more real to me than even my own wife. And I didn't have a wife then, so I couldn't pray that. So I'd say, Lord, I thank you that you're more real to me than even my clothes. Even my own flesh rubbing against my flesh, you're more real to me than that. If you can understand that, then you're not going to fear the passing away of your biology because what's after that is more real to you than this right here. That does not diminish the fact that he has freely given us all things to enjoy today, and we are to enjoy things today, but this is just a phase in our eternal existence. So the Bible talks about dissolved tabernacles. The Bible graciously describes all doctrines from numerous perspectives and with several examples. Praise the Lord for that. And this doctrine of death is no different. So death is described in numerous terms for us. Peter and Paul both described our bodies as tabernacles, which is a King James word for tents. Think about that. Uh, your body, according to God, is just a tent. It will one day be folded up and put away. It's, it's a pop tent. <laughs> That's how temporal it is. We've all seen tents. We've seen uh, carnival tents, and we've seen circus tents and camping tents. That's what Paul and Peter said. That's all this is. Isn't it the hubris or the arrogance of mankind to want to live forever in this pop tent and they want to freeze their brain and cryogenically freeze their mind and 
why? This thing is cursed. This thing is dissolving even as we speak. As you guys know, because you're, you're well-educated, right now, bacteria is attacking your body, trying to break it down. Right now, you have viruses and bacteria in your body trying to attack it and break it down. It is only by the built-in systems that you continue to thrive healthy, and by the grace of God, you can repel these things. This thing is under attack from the moment you're conceived, not just by the liberals, <laughs> but also by biology. Amen. <laughs> Somebody said, Democrats do love Republicans as long as they're dead. And they love babies as long as they can be aborted. Peter and Paul both described our bodies as tabernacles or tents, calling them our earthly house. Let me throw this back in. Republicans abort babies too. And they just make money off the back end of the abortion industry. So I don't, I'm not a Republican. I, I just want to preach the gospel, wrap this thing up, and go into the next stage of existence with the kingdom. They call them our earthly house, which implies we have a heavenly house. So first, uh, 2 Peter 1, 13 and 14. Yes, I think it good as long as I'm in this tabernacle to stir you up by putting you in remembrance, knowing that shortly I must put off this my tabernacle, <clears throat> even as our Lord Jesus Christ has shown me. Now, just as a side note, if Peter is writing and he's saying, I'm about to die, probably the rest of 2 Peter would be very important to pay attention to because it's the last thing he's getting to write down for God. And you go on to read the rest of Peter, it's Second Peter, it's terrifying. It's the day we live in. Deceivers, false prophets uh, leading astray. He said, I must put off this my tabernacle. And it might be a good confession for some of you old word of faith people to know we only confess the scripture, all right? I must put off this my body one day. Death and life are in the power of the tongue. Wait, you just said we have to confess scripture. Thy word is life. And part of confessing life is one day I must put off this my tabernacle. See how superstitious and spooky the word of faith people got? That would be us taking a truth too far to one degree. So this is where I like to say, you're all going to die. Amen. Just not today. And one day we will say yes and amen. I am going to die today. And, and before the sun goes down, I will see my maker face to face. And I can't wait for it to happen. In that day, not today. Huh? If the Lord wants me to see his face, he can come to me in a vision or a trance. Huh? I'm not interested in it today. I want to go home and see my wife's face and see my kid's face. Peter described death as putting off his tabernacle. This, the tent in which our spirit resides will be taken down upon our death. And honestly, if you were to be walking and all of a sudden your spirit man departs, your body would be collapsed like a tent. It would just fall. It would instantly go limp. If an animal is shot or even a human being shot in a critical kill spot, they'd collapse. The tent would be taken down. Paul described physical death in different terms. He described death as the dissolution of our tabernacle. That means it dissolves. I think about dissolving something in acid or dissolving Alka-Seltzer in water or dissolving sugar or salt in water. It goes from a solid state, breaks down or is absorbed into nothing. It's actually a pretty gross term when you think about it in English. 2 Corinthians 5.1, Paul said, For we know that if our earthly house of this tabernacle were dissolved. Dissolved, that's a chemical term. We have a building of God, and house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. 
In my father's house are many mansions. That might be bodies. The word is not mansion as we understand mansion. It's the word abode, many dwelling places. Well, where, where do you abide? In your body. We kind of have a doctrine that when we get to heaven, we have all these mansions. But biblically speaking, we don't live in heaven forever. We live on the earth. So it may be time to kind of reevaluate some of John's teachings or gospel. Because uh, here it says, we have a building of God, a house not made with hands. That's in conjunction or comparison to if this house of our tabernacle were dissolved, talking about the body. But we have a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. So here dissolved, the Greek word kataluo, it means to loosen down. And that describes decomposition. This vividly alludes to the decomposition of the human body. Our tabernacles will all decompose one day, not to, uh, not to be discouraged though. Paul adds that when we lose this body, we have an eternal body made without hands awaiting us. Now, coming back to dissolution or to dissolve, if you were to go take a two or three month old, and my science may be off on this, so don't hold me to it. If you were to go get a casket that has been recently buried and exhume it, it'd be kind of like mush man. It would start to break down. About the only thing solid in there might be bones. And that's because we put them in aluminum sealed containers. And we do that so we don't poison the water table and to keep bacteria and infection. Your body breaks down and becomes nothing because out of the dirt you come and back to the dirt you go. Even if you're incinerated in a fiery furnace or burned at the stake, you still become ash, which goes up and then comes back down somewhere. This is a biological thing we get to dwell in. And as when we teach on the resurrection in a few weeks, I'm going to show you some things from the word and from theology that is pretty trippy that the theologians, the scriptures, and even the philosophers realize that this body was a direct extension of your soul. When we teach on affection in the next service, we're going to find out from neuroscience that every one of your nerve endings ties back to your emotional cortex in your brain, that your body is an extension of your soul, not your spirit man, but your soul. And in order to be promoted into heaven, you got to lose this thing. So don't get too attached to it. Take care of it, but don't get too attached to it. Death is a spiritual exodus. Death is also viewed as a, as a spiritual exodus, the spirit's departure from the body and from this fallen world. I haven't had enough of this world yet, but there's going to come a time I'm sure I'm going to say I'm done. And you don't have to worry about that day. Every one of us used to be in love with something that we just lived for, and now all these years later we think, I don't want to have anything to do with that anymore. Whether it's a favorite movie or a favorite sports team or a hobby or even a friend, there was a point when there was something you just couldn't get enough of, and now your taste has changed, your heart has matured, and you just care nothing for it anymore. You came to a place where you said, I'm all done with this. And I can encourage you, there will come a day in your life when you will say, I'm all done with this world. I want nothing less, more that it has to offer. I am done, and I am out of here. You, it's hard to imagine today when you're in the prime of your life, you're excited about having a grandbaby or a baby or getting married or the new job or the thing you're going to purchase. It's hard to imagine that, but there'll come a day where you'll say, I am done with this. 
I saw it with my own grandfather. He was getting ready to die. He, he was, he was, his body was shutting down. They couldn't figure out what was wrong with him because otherwise he was in perfect health. But he said, I'm tired. I don't want to be here anymore. Is it okay if I die, son? I said, yeah, Papaw. You're born again. You love God. You've lived a long life. With long life, he'll satisfy you. And if you're satisfied, you can go home. Just fall asleep. And he did three days later. Just fell asleep. He came to a point. He was a World War II vet and a very successful farmer and businessman. He's just done. Didn't want anymore. Wasn't sad to leave me. Wasn't sad to leave the grandbabies that were being born. Done. Wanted to meet God. You'll get to that place too. Miss Lola, if you remember Miss Lola, she, she said that, that was her confession every Sunday. Why am I still here? Why won't God take me? I said, Miss Lola, because you do more evangelism than my whole church combined. So God's kind of given you all the workload because we're too lazy. Well, I don't want to be here anymore. And I think even in her 80s, she still had men pursuing her. I don't know if she ever told you that story. She said, can you imagine that? A man wanting me in my 80s. <laughs> of course, she died in her 90s, 94, 95, something like that. I think she was born old. And it's just my personal opinion. <laughs> Our tabernacles will all decompose one day, but we have another body awaiting us. So from the time this body decomposes until we get our glorified body, we'll spend time in heaven. We'll cover that some more in the next few lessons. And then the resurrection will come. And those which are dead in Christ shall rise first. And then we which are alive and remain will be caught up afterward. We'll talk a little bit about the rapture because a lot of folks don't believe in the rapture, but you have to understand the rapture is what kicks off the resurrection of the dead. And if you don't believe in the rapture, then how do you rectify the core doctrine of the resurrection of the dead? So anytime you find somebody that doesn't believe in a rapture, ask them where they stand on their doctrine of the resurrection of the dead. And they'll probably won't have much of one because the church just doesn't study the resurrection of the dead, though it's one of Paul's major doctrines that he emphasizes over and over again. But I got to get going here. Death, the spiritual exodus here. Luke 9, 30 through 31. And behold, there talked with him two men, which were Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spake of his decease. Now the word decease there is the Greek word exodus. They spoke to Jesus of his exodus, which he should accomplish at Jerusalem. So he was getting out of the world at Jerusalem, his death. According to the Greek, an exodus is an exit or a departure. The only way out of this world is death. The only way out is through death. And you don't have to fear it. You need to start determining now, even though some of you are uh, quite a bit younger than me, that I'm going... And when I die, I'm just going to fall asleep. I'm not going through cancer. I'm not going through Alzheimer's. I'm not going through MS or, or carpal tunnel or whatever your thing is. I'm not going through any of that. Dark tunnel, light tunnel, bad tunnel. I'm not dying in a plane crash. I'm going, I'm going to fall asleep and have time to say goodbye to all my loved ones and get my house in order. That's a biblical command to be able to die with your house in order. Start determining that now. It's, oft, it's interesting. Faith, our faith message that we were blessed by was so focused on life, we never knew how to prepare for death. Actually, we didn't even want to acknowledge it. But part of faith is preparing for your death. And we'll wrap up this teaching with that in a few weeks.
The Lord's death at Calvary was his departure from his body and from this world. Now, there was no greater faith man than the Christ. And apparently talking about death was so critical, he had to have a mount of transfiguration. It wasn't some casual conversation with fingers crossed and being terrified that death and life were in the power of his tongue and and maybe I shouldn't be talking about this. He went up to a mountain to seek God. God allows Moses and Elijah to come back from eternity in transfigured bodies and the whole conversation is death. And in faith circles, we are so superstitious and paranoid to talk about our demise. But you're all going to die one day. It's just not going to be today. And you don't get to do it before Christmas because I'm not doing any funerals the rest of the year. We'll just put you in a refrigerator somewhere. We've got a couple big freezer chests around here. We'll just stuff you in there, thaw you out come springtime, and then we'll put you in the ground. You won't know. We won't tell the police either because somebody will go to jail for that. (laughs) Second Peter, Peter said, moreover, I will endeavor that you may be able after my decease, Exodus, to have these things always in remembrance. I would encourage us to go study 2 Peter because that's Peter's last writing before his death. And he talks about death twice in chapter 1. He's letting them know, I am about to die. Listen to what I have to say. Holy man of God on their deathbed or on their death day, you want to listen to everything they have to say because that's what's so real to them. When my papaw was dying, and uh, we went to go visit him Memorial Day 2004, and I remember because they were dedicating the World War II Memorial in D.C., and we were supposed to go to that because he was a World War II vet. We couldn't, so we went to be with him in Louisiana, and he called me to his bedside after everybody had left because he wanted to talk to me about death and didn't want them around. He told me, he said, he said I'm tired and I want to go home, and he said, but I'm terrified to meet God because I know that when we came back from World War II and I joined the Methodist Church as a deacon, he said, I'm afraid we made some decisions to glorify us and not Jesus. I'm afraid we steered the church in some convenient ways that were easier on us and not for the betterment of the kingdom. And that haunts me. And that was 60 years prior. This is what he's thinking about as he's getting ready to meet God. Not, I'm going to miss my wife. I'm going to miss my grandchildren. I'm going to miss my great-grandchildren that are just being born. He was concerned about things he had done for the kingdom in the 40s, 50s, and 60s, 1940s, 50s, and 60s. So a man of God or a woman of God, when they're getting ready to go home, you want to listen to what they have to say because it's what eternity is bringing into focus for them. And they they become a very direct mouthpiece for heaven. Second Peter is such a mouthpiece. All scripture is inspired, but that one in Second Timothy, Second Timothy's Paul's last writing, you want to go focus on those because it's what these men are seeing as they're about to be done with their race. All right, let's move on here. Peter described the putting off of his tabernacle as his exodus. Paul also said something very similar, Philippians 1.23, for I am in a strait between two having a desire to depart. That's death an exodus, and to be with Christ, which is far better. When you die, you go to be with Christ. Physical death results in the spirit man departing the earthly house in order to be with Christ, or if wicked, to go to hell. One day, all born-again believers in Christ Jesus will get to depart this life and see him face to face. Uh, Dr. Barclay says, we live for God, or we meet God, we live for God, then we get to die and go be with God. Do not fear death. 
It's promotion. And again, we're not dying today. And we stand on Psalm 91 with long life. Will he satisfy us? And we're not dying till we're satisfied. But the Bible says of Abraham that he was gathered to a grave when he was fully sated or satiated. or That means fully satisfied. Sated means you're so full, if you had another bite, you'd throw up. Abraham basically said, I'm so full, I don't want another bite of this world. Let me just die. Let me go on into eternity. The sleep of death. Here's another aspect the way the Bible describes it. The Bible refers to the death of our natural body as sleep. Daniel 12.2 initiates this Hebraic idiom. That means this Hebrew expression. And many of them that sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, talking about their bodies. This is one of the first scriptures prophesying about the resurrection. Some to everlasting life and some to shame and everlasting contempt. This verse here begins to teach us the doctrine that even the, de- even the wicked will have a resurrected body. Those that sleep in the dust, some to everlasting contempt. We'll get into that when we cover the resurrection of the dead. This verse from Daniel recalls God's pers- uh, curse upon Adam and Ecclesiastes' declaration. Genesis 3.19 says... Uh, till thou return unto the ground, for dust thou art, and unto dust thou shalt return. Ecclesiastes 12.7 says, Then shall the dust return to the earth as it was, and the Spirit shall return unto God who gave it. So our bodies are but dirt. Don't get too attached to it. Just keep it as clean as you can. Keep it healthy. Keep it in shape. Because if it goes through sickness and disease, it may be your fault, and you don't get to finish your race. You have been promised by God. If He gave you a race, He gave you a body that can finish the race. But that assumes you take care of the body so it's able to finish the race. View your body as a vehicle. If God gives me a 4x4 truck, I can pretty much assume he wants me to climb something or go through muddy situations. But the 4x4 truck has not been given to drag race. It's not been given to overload. It's not been given to haul tractor trailer rigs with. You have to determine and be convinced. If God gave you a race to run, then the body he gave you is adequate and probably more than enough to finish that race, assuming you do the word with your body. You take care of it. You keep your appetites under. You keep the obesity off. You eat healthy food. God's given us a good brain and a lot of science. Science has has grown to help us understand how our diet has changed. So even though diet has gotten worse, God's also given us knowledge to compensate for the bad diet. None of us should die prematurely through laziness or neglect of the word. If you have a race, the body's adequate. Otherwise, God would be unjust to give me a Toyota Tercel, if you remember the old Tercel, and expect me to race Lamborghinis. That would be unjust. If he wants me to race Lamborghinis, my car is well able. And so is your body. All right. So the sleep of death, the sleeping body. Generally speaking, and with the exception of explosions or cremation, Human bodies are buried back into the earth and left to decompose and return to the elements. Some believe that upon death, the spirit of man and therefore his consciousness is actually asleep unto the resurrection. This is a doctrine called soul slumber. We do not hold this doctrine. It's not heresy. It's just a misunderstanding. And you'll find a lot of folks do believe that. The teaching is often called spirit slumber or soul slumber, and it is doctrinally incorrect. The Bible does not teach spirit slumber or soul slumber. To sleep is the Hebraic idiom for death, to die, or a dead body. We've got plenty of verses that back that up. 
Daniel figuratively describes bodily death as sleeping in the dust of the earth. Why? Because you bury their bodies in the dirt, and to the dirt they return. Now, let me also say this. There are some that don't believe in cremation. They believe it's almost a, a dishonor to the body. I do not hold to such a strictness. I got dear friends who are great Bible students who don't agree with cremation. Um, we just came from South Africa a few weeks ago, and when we go to South Africa, we minister among the Indians, in Durban in particular, Phoenix in, in specific, and it's about almost a million Indians, and probably 80% of them are born again. But because of the politics, the government will not give cemetery space to the Indians. They have to go and buy it in some very expensive forms. And consequently, the Indians can't bury their Christian dead. So they're having to resort to cremation to dispose of the body. Because legally, you have to dispose of the body. You can't just let grandma sit in the chair. You have to do something about it. Our friend Pastor Casey, he runs a funeral home or a, a, um, a funeral service. And he, his clientele is mostly Zulu. Because the Zulu are given all the land, because it's KwaZulu Natal, that's the province. And because of that, uh, his clientele is mostly Zulu, but very few Indians can afford to bury their dead, so they're cremating. You can't tell me we're going to go to KwaZulu Natal and tell the Indians you're all in sin for cremating your dead and make a big doctrinal push to change the direction of the church to try to line everything up to what we do with a dead body that's just going to be resurrected one day anyway. So that might be an extreme example. Uh, then again, what do you do when you cast somebody into the ocean? They become fish food before they hit the bottom. What do you do if they're obliterated? What do you do if they're taken in a volcanic explosion or Hiroshima or Nagasaki or war? Anyway, that aside, Daniel figuratively describes bodily death as sleeping in the dust of the earth. The, the body was said to be sleeping because at the resurrection, it would be raised up again, just as people get up when they awake from natural sleep. Jesus used this Hebraism when speaking of Lazarus' death. He said in John 11, Our friend Lazarus sleepeth, talking about being dead. But I go that I may wake him out of his sleep. Howbeit Jesus spake of his death, but they thought that he had spoken of taking rest in sleep. Then Jesus said unto them plainly, Lazarus is dead. So I'm just throwing this out there. I want to try to briefly cover all aspects of the doctrine of natural death. When we die... Our physical body is what the Bible says is to be sleeping, not our soul. We don't go into some kind of unconscious spiritual state because Paul said to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. Does that sound like you're spiritually asleep? No. To die is far better because it's to be with Christ. It's not to be asleep. So you have too many scriptures that undermine the whole soul slumber doctrine. So just disregard that whole thing. The disciples thought Lazarus was merely sick and resting, not dead. Jesus was using sleep in the traditional Hebrew sense to communicate that Lazarus' body was dead. Building upon Daniel's doctrine of dust sleep, Paul also uses the term sleep in reference to the death of the human body, not the spirit slumber of the disembodied spirit, 1 Corinthians 15, 20. But now is Christ risen from the dead and become the first fruits of them that slept. Again, their bodies are dead. Christ is risen from the dead. Is that referring to his spirit or his body? His body. When, when it talks about Christ being risen from the dead, it's always a reference to his glorified body, his resurrected body, and he's become the first fruits of them that slept. What slept? The body. He's, his body resurrected is a forerunner of their bodies, our bodies, being resurrected. 
We know Jesus didn't lose consciousness for three days while he was in the grave. If there is such thing as soul slumber, then Jesus would have been the first fruits of soul slumber. He did not lose consciousness. He went and preached to the prisoners. He told the thief, this day you will be with me in paradise. Christ's bodily resurrection from the dead proved the long-held doctrine of the resurrection was real and that others would follow. He was the first fruits of those to be resurrected after him. So hopefully you're catching this. There's no doctrine of soul slumber. You don't just pass away and lose total consciousness. You go to be with Christ or you go to hell. Furthermore, you have Lazarus and the rich man. They both died. They were very much awake. Lazarus was being blessed. The rich man was in torments, and they had a conversation with Abraham. And Abraham preached to that man about the resurrection. If they won't believe Moses and the prophets, neither will they believe the one be raised from the dead. Amen. Paul further demonstrated that God views death as slumber for the corrupted body while it awaits its resurrection. 1 Corinthians 15, 50. Now this I say, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, neither does corruption inherit incorruption. But I show you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. It's a reference to our bodies. We shall not all sleep. Our bodies will not all sleep, but our bodies will all be changed. Some will be alive when the rapture happens, and they will be resurrected without ever having to die. But then again, this is a body of death, and it must be resurrected. Now again, this is a lot to cover. I want you, hopefully you can see, we've not ever really talked about death or understood all the implications. We've been so hung up on the now, which is great because now faith is, we've missed the hope that's coming. And we've not even prepared our hearts for it. We shall not all die, but we shall all change. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. And when we are changed, we have to instantly die to have a glorified body. But then again, what is death? It's just the cessation of your biology. And the second you receive a glorified body, the old passes away and you instantly have something new. So technically you die in a flash of time. But then again, isn't all death a flash of time? Just, and you're gone. In reference to corruption or flesh's inability to in inherit incorruption or heaven, Paul stated that not all of our bodies will sleep, but all of our bodies, whether alive or dead, shall be changed into glorified, immortal, incorruptible bodies. 1 Thessalonians 4, wrapping it up here. But I would not have you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning them which are asleep, that you sorrow not, even as others who have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so them also which sleep in Jesus will God bring with him. This is why we have a doctrine of Christian burial. Because when we're burying the bodies, we, we're declaring they are, this body is asleep in Christ. I believe anytime someone dies, you should have a service. I believe anytime someone dies, you should have at least a memorial service. If there's no body because of an explosion, because of a plane crash, if you've got no remains, you should, you should do something to demonstrate and testify they are asleep in Christ. I think it's, let me tactfully say it, I think it's shallow and fear-based to not want to have any kind of service. It might be a selfish, inconvenient thing. It's just too much trouble. The Bible says very clearly, those also which sleep in Jesus. We have to signify this was a Christian. They're in heaven now. This is their body, and we sow it in faith into the ground or into the ashes or what have you. 
For this we say unto you by the word of the Lord, that we which are alive and remain unto the coming of the Lord shall not prevent them which are asleep, and the dead in Christ shall rise first. I'm trying to show you all these scriptures that talk about sleep. If you'll notice, a lot of these come out of 1 Corinthians chapter 15. This is very critical. Corinth was part of Greece. Greece would soon have a heresy called Gnosticism, and Gnosticism was all about the flesh and the body being wicked, 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 wicked. And Paul was preparing and establishing the doctrine that the body is good. It was made by God. And guess what? After this, you're getting another body. Because the Gnostics wanted no body whatsoever. It was all spirit. Sounds like word of faith. All spirit. But we have a natural we have to contend with. And one of the quotes I'll give you, I'll give it to you now. One of the theologians says, it seems as though the Bible is not contented with a bodiless eternity. You will have a body for all of eternity. You ought to learn how to take care of one right now. All right, last page. It is further evident from this passage that all references to sleep applied to a dead human body and not to a slumbering spirit as some believe and hold. This passage concerning the resurrection of the dead is clearly in regards to the bodies of believers rising and being transformed before the bodies of, spirit, of saints who are alive at the moment of the catching away. All this that I've given is to just further disprove soul slumber, which some people just hold to so tightly. Consider what Paul said about the spirit man's relation to the body. 2 Corinthians 5, 6, and 8. Therefore, we are always confident knowing this while we are at home in the body. Notice you should be at home in your body. You're just not attached to it. We are absent from the Lord. We are confident, I say, and willing rather to be absent from the body and to be present with the Lord. So to be absent from the body instantly puts you in the presence of Jesus Christ. This is why we do not fear natural death. Because the second you die, you're instantly in the presence of Jesus Christ. Maybe not instantly. We know the angels do transport you. They do see you into eternity. As long as our body is alive, we are absent from the heavenly presence of the Lord. But once our bodies die, our spirit man doesn't sleep. We're instantly in the presence of the Lord. Remember the story of Lazarus, Luke 16, 22. And it came to pass that the beggar dies, his body died, and was carried, his spirit, by the angels into Abraham's bosom. Even before the resurrection, when a person died, their spirit didn't sleep, but was awake, conscious, and in fellowship with Abraham, able to be comforted, or else, as the rich man was in torments, very much aware of their present condition and agony. So we've beat a dead horse here. When you're dead, you are conscious. And you know when you're going to hell. My mama, who's been a nurse for 40 years, probably 45 years, she's watched several people die, and as they're dying, scream in agony in hell as they're being disconnected from their body. That's trippy. Conscious the whole way down, just like the rich man. Send, send him to t dip his finger in some water to quench my, my thirst, the rich man said. And Abraham said, can't be done. There's a great gulf. No coming and going. You're in torments. The disembodied spirit. All right, last section here. You guys are doing good. We're giving you the doctrine of death. We're not going to be superstitious word of fakers. You're all going to die one day. And we're going to talk about death because that's what Jesus did. But we have a glorified body coming. And if you didn't know, what you have right now is not a glorious body. Now, a lot of like 35-year-old immature women on Facebook think what they have is glorified cleavage. No, no, no. That's called narcissism 
and insecurity. You may have a healthy body, but this is not the final state. Physical death separates our body from our spirit man. Before the resurrection of Jesus Christ, all disembodied spirits went to the grave. Everybody. Abraham went to the grave. David went to the grave. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego went to the grave. Moses went to the grave. And that is the Greek word, Hebrew word sheol, also known as hell. Next week, we're going to talk about the doctrine of hell. Everybody, including Jesus Christ, went to hell. The grave, the place of the departed. And as we'll see next week, hell had two compartments, paradise and torments, and a great gulf fixed in between, as Luke 15 teaches us. Nobody could go into heaven until the resurrection of Christ. So, as Ephesians says, Jesus Christ himself descended. Does that sound like he went to heaven? No. Into the heart of the earth, and he led a captive train, and then he ascended on high and led captivity captive. Everybody before the resurrection went to Sheol, Hades, the place of the departed. And we'll look at that more next week. Now, after the resurrection of Jesus Christ, those who are born again go straight to heaven, while those who are lost must go to hell, torments. And even the hell that they go to today is not the final torments. In the final judgment, even hell and death are cast into the lake of fire. So these are compartments and spiritual entities, which is a very trippy concept. Hell and death are cast into the lake of fire for eternity. Philippians 1.23, For I am in a strait between two, having a desire to depart and to be with Christ, which is far better. They did not go to be with Christ before the resurrection. They went to Abraham's bosom, the father of faith. They went to the place of the departed. They were the prisoners that were kept captive until the resurrection. As Hebrews says, these all died in faith, having not received the promises, but having seen them afar off and were persuaded of them and fully embraced them. They were sojourners and foreigners in a strange land. They died in faith, awaiting the resurrection of Christ. Christ had to go preach to them. This is that. I am he and I have done. And they said, we've been waiting for you. And then he led them captive into eternity, into heaven. And now after the resurrection, we all get to be with Jesus. Here's another doctrinal quandary for you. The Lord is raised up from the dead, walked the earth for 40 days, right? Glorified body, but he hadn't ascended yet. So having not ascended, he had not taken the captive train to heaven. So for 40 days, you know, people were dying in Jerusalem because people die every day. Did they still go to Sheol or were they able to beat Jesus into heaven? Because Jesus didn't go to heaven until the resurrection. So what happened for 40 days? That also kind of corresponds with the question, did the church start at the resurrection or at the ascension? At the ascension or at Pentecost? I believe I received my new wristwatch. I believe I received my new wristwatch. I believe I received my new BMW. You see how shallow we got? I believe I received my man. What about things of concerning eternity? The doctrine of the resurrected Christ and eternal judgment. I believe God for nice things, but at least know your Bible better than selfish causation. Amen. You got quiet on that one. Or maybe you're just thinking, I don't know. What happened to the people for 40 days in between the resurrection and the ascension? He led captivity captive. He ascended on high. Then he gave gifts unto men, not before. 
but he didn't ascend until the ascension. So he didn't go to heaven until Acts 1. But he was raised, Matthew 28. We got to, it's worth studying. And if you find an answer, let me know because I have no answer for you. I just want to stir up your thinking pot so you go do something other than Facebook and entertainment. Because Christ has ascended, all who now die in him depart planet earth to be with him, which is far better. For this reason alone, we should never begrudge someone their desire to pass away in order to be with Jesus, especially at the end of their life or after long failing battles against horrific diseases. I would never begrudge somebody who's fought cancer and is just tired. I would never begrudge them the right to pass away. My mama has a dear friend. She fought cancer a couple years ago and beat it, went through horrific chemo and, and radiation. And she beat cancer, and then it came back. And so my mama was telling me she ran into her again. And she said, how are you doing? She said, not good. Give me a hug. My cancer's back, and I'm not fighting it again. So this may be the last time you see me because I'm done fighting this thing. I'm just ready to quit. I'm going home. What can you say to somebody? How can you begrudge them that? When they don't want to go through it, they've made their peace with God. I, I, I can't say, there's no faith in that. I'm not walking through that hell. I haven't had to beat cancer once. She, she's older. She's my mama's age, so she's probably pushing 70. You've seen your grandbabies? You just don't want to go through the chemo again? I can't begrudge that. Back 20 years ago, we would have. Well, they're not in faith. They're ready to see Jesus. You going to tell the Lord that's not faith? They've made their house. They've put it in order. They've got everybody hugged and kissed goodbye. Their husband's at peace. Going to miss his wife, but how can I begrudge her wanting to see Jesus and not go through hell again? I don't know. For this reason, we should never begrudge anyone the desire to pass away. Conclusion. To conclude, our body is our earthly house, a dissolvable tabernacle, which must be put off in order to put on our immortal house from heaven. I like that. The glorified body, we can call it our immortal house from heaven. When our earthly house is put off, it will, be uh, it will both dissolve yet sleep until it is awakened in the resurrection. And we'll answer questions about, well, how does God do that? And, and what about all the little particles and atoms? There's all, all this has been uh, debated and worked out theologically for two or 300 years, so don't worry about it. Uh, there's, there's a connection between this body and our glorified body, even if you cremate this one and scatter the ashes in the ocean. God will make a connection. We'll show that to you. All right, we learn anything? You excited to die? I am. Not today, though. <laughs> I'm not anywhere close to it. I got another 45 years, I figure. I'm, I'm not even middle-aged yet. Some of y'all are over the hill. I'm kind of cresting. I can just about see it. Some of y'all, please, you don't have permission once you crest the hill to hop on a bobsled and go down fast. You don't get to go down fast. Take a nice, easy descent. Or, or let, let your middle age, the hill, be kind of a plateau, and then you go up even higher for God. Yeah, don't, don't slip off into oblivion and be useless the last 20 years of your life. You ought to be giving us more of you. Amen.